0: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
1: And I'm Kyle Condick.
0: We are recording this conversation on January 17th, less than a week away from the New Hampshire primary. The polling average from 538 as of January 17th, 2024, has Donald Trump leading at 44.4%, followed by Nikki Haley at 31.4%. As a result of this race, 22 delegates to the Republican National Convention are up for grabs in New Hampshire and will be awarded on a proportional basis. Um, That's just a tiny portion of the 1,215 delegates that are needed to clinch the Republican nomination. Um, But the state has played a traditionally outsized role in the nominating process because of its early spot on the calendar. On the Democratic side, 33 delegates are gonna be sent to the DNC from New Hampshire. Um, But their vote isn't going to be bound by the primary results because of a dispute over the timing um, of holding the votes since the DNC moved its first 2024 contest to South Carolina, which is significantly more diverse than New Hampshire's nearly 90 percent white population. So what that means is that the New Hampshire primary will serve uh, purely as a barometer of support for Democrats in the race. Joining us to share his expertise on New Hampshire is Dante Scala, a professor at the University of New Hampshire, and he has a new analysis out on the crystal ball this week. The link will be posted in the episode notes. Thank you so much for joining us, Dante.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here.
0: Um, So one of the most important things that you discuss in your analysis is is that just four of New Hampshire's 10 counties, Hillsborough and Rockingham on the Massachusetts border, and Merrimack, which contains the state capital of Concord, and Stratford, which is home of the University of New Hampshire, will likely comprise 75% of the primary electorate. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about uh, your analysis and and why these counties uh, hold so much weight in determining the outcome.
2: Right, I mean, New Hampshire doesn't like to admit this, but uh, we are affected by Massachusetts and Boston in particular in terms of migration patterns and population settlements and so forth. So you can think of the southern tier of the state where where hillsborough and rockingham counties are as the outer suburban ring of the boston metro area and when i moved here uh 25 years ago the story about why new hampshire was moving from a red state to a purple state uh it boiled down to simply blame massachusetts like blame massachusetts liberals for moving up Interstate 93 north to New Hampshire and turning the state liberal from conservative. But nowadays, the base of the Republican Party uh, is no longer the Yankee Republican who lives out in the woods somewhere, but it's uh, someone who lives in either the suburbs or exurbs of Hillsborough and Rockingham counties. And You know, those counties in particular, Hillsborough's more like a pure bellwether, Rockingham typically leans a bit more Republican. Um, That's where the race between Trump and Haley will largely be decided. And it's this mix of uh, small cities like Manchester and Nashua, prosperous suburbs like Bedford, uh, Windham, and as well as, small towns that have experienced ex-urban growth over the past few decades, and those in particular tend to be strong Trump areas.
1: John Kasich ended up finishing second uh, in New Hampshire in uh, in 2016, ahead of a kind of a crowded field. Of course, Trump won um, pretty easily overall. But uh, you know part of what you talk about in your analysis is that Haley kind of needs to take the Kasich coalition and sort of supercharge it. So like, where should we look for her to to really be trying to build on Kasich.
2: Yeah, Kasich wound up in 2016, uh, in part because he was largely left alone by the other candidates, uh, but also because he found a certain niche, uh, did very well with moderate voters uh, across the state. And I would say this time around, You know, look for Haley to do well in places like, say, the state capital of Concord, um, as well as surrounding areas, you know, places like uh, Bow, New Hampshire, for example. Um, And you tend to find, at least in and around the state capital, a more moderate type of Republican. If it indeed becomes the case that there are Democrats deciding to play or make mischief in the Republican primary. Uh, Look for that to happen in college towns. You know, places like uh, Durham, New Hampshire, which is the home of the State University, as well as nearby Lee and Madbury, Uh, way up in Grafton County, which is far in the northern New Hampshire, in and around Dartmouth College, places like Hanover, uh but also uh the city of lebanon um then in the southwest corner uh places like keene which is the home of keene state college so those are areas where Kasich did well and i expect haley to do well there too throw in uh new hampshire's seacoast which is on the eastern side of rockingham county tends to be a lot of old wealth there also tend to be uh what remains of moderate republicans like she'll have a beachhead in rockingham county along the seacoast but over time the real weight of rockingham county is now on the western side of the county and those kind of exurbs of manchester and uh, that's going to be where Trump, if he's doing well, will kind of rack up very solid vote totals, maybe even majorities uh, in those towns.
0: So one of the things about New Hampshire is that we are not expecting it to be as big of a blowout as Iowa was. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what is driving uh, supporters of Trump and what are some of the issues in New Hampshire that continue to drive support for Donald Trump?
2: What? i'm seeing a lot of in advertisements both in television and on mail uh, is uh immigration and taxes uh it's interesting when you look at nikki haley and trying to establish her conservative credentials now which sounds a bit strange because you know nikki haley wasn't exactly a moderate as governor of South Carolina and she would never describe herself as such but because she's opposing the former president that in a lot of ways is how Republicans define themselves ideologically these days Uh you know do you like Trump or oppose Trump and that's as much as your policy positions it was is what makes you uh, uh, a moderate or a conservative uh, uh, colleagues of mine, uh, Hans Noel over at Georgetown University, for example, and uh, Dan Hopkins at the University of Pennsylvania have done some interesting work on this. But uh, what I'm seeing in different mail pieces for Haley, whether it's from Haley herself, perhaps, or from uh, Super PAC, or from Uh, the Koch brothers group Americans for Prosperity is kind of touting her conservative credentials, especially on fiscal issues, taxes, spending. Haley likes to talk about deficit spending, which is sort of an old school, New Hampshire conservative thing to do. Uh, Whereas for Trump, uh, he's hitting her pretty hard on taxes, but also on immigration and the border Uh, that's what i'm seeing from from him and one key thing to keep in mind is new hampshire is definitely a more moderate state than iowa and there will be a lot more moderates in the electorate next tuesday than there were in iowa i mean in iowa if the entrance polls were correct it was something like one out of ten describe themselves as moderates. Um, It's gonna be more moderate here. However, you know, the national media shorthand typically is like, oh, well, New Hampshire, that's the moderate state. It's still the case that it's very likely that a majority of New Hampshire Republican primary voters next week will describe themselves as conservative, maybe not very conservative, but at least somewhat conservative. They're definitely more moderate on issues like abortion than, say, Iowa conservatives are. That's because they are, by and large, much less religious, much most, much less likely to go to religious services weekly. So you hear a lot less about abortion up here. Um, that, I think, is one reason why Haley has played well, because her more consensus-minded rhetoric on abortion uh, typically really plays well among new hampshire republicans who would rather their politicians talk a lot less about abortion Um, so the border uh, taxes immigration foreign policy is something that haley often refers to uh, but you don't see as much about that in terms of her advertising although she'll in her stump speech perhaps, or in her remarks in town hall meetings, she'll defend her stance on issues like aid to uh, Ukraine. Uh, And it would have been interesting if indeed we had had a debate to hear Trump and Haley and DeSantis uh, go at it on foreign policy because there are real differences there. But of course, that is yet another New Hampshire tradition has gone by the wayside uh, because Trump's not showing up and Haley said, well, If Trump's not showing up, I'm not showing up. So for the first time I think I've ever seen here, there's not going to be that debate which takes place just days before the primary and has sometimes contained some uh, moments that have been uh, blamed or praised for turning the tide. I, I think back to 2008's Democratic primary where, you know, Barack Obama turned to Hillary Clinton and said, well, you're likable enough, Hillary. And that's gone down in, in legend, at least, uh, as something that inflamed female Democratic voters in the state that then delivered uh, the state to Hillary Clinton and set the stage for three, four more months of competitive primaries.
1: I think, too, about the 2016 with the uh, um, Chris Christie kind of stomping on Margot Rubio. That was right before New Hampshire, too, wasn't
2: it? If I'm remembering correctly. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing, Kyle, in terms of I've never quite seen, you know, such an effective uh, block and tackle of another uh, debate part of one debate participant by another. I mean, Christie really served as you know, Donald Trump's uh, blocking back uh, in that. And that was really, I mean, I think Christie has eaten lunch quite a number of times based on that debate performance. And, And interestingly, I mean, when he got into the race this time around, he would still tout that, you know, like I am the one who can take down Donald Trump. And it all went back to that moment, which was really the outstanding moment for Chris Christie in that whole cycle because as you'll recall, right, he did, he finished way back in the pack, but that Saturday night, um, you know, I, I do think Marco Rubio had gotten some momentum out of Iowa, which ha- was starting to slow down, but there was this feeling that maybe Rubio can, um, use that debate to get a second, uh, wind, you know, just in time for the Tuesday primary instead just the reverse happened and he wound up fading, you know, back into the pack.
1: Um, you know, how many, uh, uh, what, one one thing that, you know, you, ha- you see in the New Hampshire primary is that, you know, obviously a lot of independents c- cross over to participate. And that can sometimes be something you see in polls is like what the results get can be sort of determined by like how many independents you end up including as, as participants. Do you have any senses like what we should expect for, you know, the proportion of like, You know actual you know kind of registered republicans versus independents participating on tuesday
2: i mean i wouldn't be surprised i mean it's not going to be 50 50 but i think somewhere between a 50 50 split and say 60 40 um seems quite plausible to me now of course those undeclared voters in fact include a number of people who if you looked at their political behavior other than party registration they really act like partisans um, they and they vote like partisans and so forth what's the tricky part is teasing out exactly how many pure independents will be among those undeclared to show up at the polls and how many are in fact democratic leaning uh voters who decide to cross over perhaps because they're bored, there's nothing to do on the Democratic side, um, and decide, well, maybe Nikki Haley will actually stick it to Donald Trump. Uh, And I'd like to be part of that, even though I don't think of myself as a Republican. Interestingly, the Trump campaign seems very aware of that, and they're taking steps to try to prevent it. I've seen a really interesting mail piece uh, that seems designed to discourage New Hampshire independence especially never Trumpers from showing up for Nikki Haley. On one side of the mailpiece is Chris Christie, and it basically depicts Christie as the leading Trump critic in the field. Now of course I think these mail pieces were produced before Christie gets got out of the race. Um, but on one side is Chris Christie and on you flip it, on the other side is Nikki Haley. And it describes Uh, Haley as a MAGA Republican. And I think that is clearly designed to discourage uh, Christie voters from turning to Nikki Haley as their second choice. And of course, that was a drama that was playing out over the past few weeks before Christie dropped out, where essentially, There was pressure being put on christie because he wasn't going all he was going to do is right play the spoiler and if you really wanted to stop trump you didn't go with you couldn't go with christie you had to go with nikki haley and in fact chris sununu who's been you know uh nikki haley's uh chief ally up here was making that case more and more explicitly leaning on christie until he eventually uh got out Uh, but I'm curious to see how many of those never Trumpers, especially the democratic leaners actually show up, uh, to vote for Haley, who in a lot of ways is, you know, basically a conventional Republican, you know, will they actually kind of swallow hard and say, okay, I'll show up and vote for Haley. I think a key thing there is, does this race look competitive? going into the weekend like this can haley show signs of that momentum uh going into the weekend and give people you know a reason to believe that haley could actually pull off one of those historic new hampshire upsets
0: one of the things that we've talked about before and kyle has mentioned is that even if haley does win in new hampshire you know it it, She's, she, she'll continue to face hurdles moving forward from there. Um, so she could win New Hampshire, but there, there, there still aren't very many possibilities. And, and she also significantly sort of underperformed what she needed in terms of the delegate count from, a, from Iowa. So it's gonna constantly be a game of catch up in terms of garnering the delegates needed uh, for the RNC. The
2: thing I wonder about going forward is, I mean, it's easy to envision The nomination contest essentially wrapping up in haley's home state of south carolina i mean i'd be surprised i mean haley seems assured of a solid second place here even if it's not especially close i mean a safe estimate seems like a 10 to 15 point margin like basically half of what it was in iowa i mean that seems to be uh what polls are showing right now uh but I do wonder if desantis and haley even if south carolina doesn't go well will they decide to try and stay in simply to try to accumulate at least some delegates uh wondering or speculating whether it's worth it to stay in for the long term and accumulate delegates because who knows what's going to happen with donald trump uh, his various indictments and trials and so forth. I mean, that seems like a a very long shot and not one without some risk of blowback because Trump is going to want to wrap this up as quickly as possible, as he was suggesting in Iowa. Uh, but I do wonder whether you know that might be something that either DeSantis or Haley uh, decides to do. Now, of course, both of them are young, relatively. And might think, well, I might have a future in 2028, so maybe I don't want to antagonize the former president and future nominee, uh, and so I'll decide to get out. I, I think probably that's a little bit more likely, but you never know.
1: Dante, last question, and you know, we've got this Democratic primary going on that is not awarding the delegates, as Kara mentioned, and, and Biden himself is not even on the ballot. Um how are you looking at 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 that contest and Dean Phillips' campaign? And you know what what you know what, what do you think we had to take out of it, if anything?
2: You know, it makes my head hurt <laughs> in a couple of different ways because you know there are just these weird factors involved. Like one is the the fact that it's a write-in, which we haven't seen in a primary in the state since LBJ in '68. Uh, that's one thing. You know what will you know voters do you know writing in a candidate's not especially hard here uh the the standards are pretty generous for counting votes but you never know when you ask voters to do something that's uh not the norm you wonder what's going to happen and then of course there's been the controversy between Biden and New Hampshire about demoting New Hampshire will that play a part and New Hampshire Democratic elites it's it's strange like on the one hand, they're upset with Biden. On the other hand, some of them are the ones who are backing this right in campaign. So it's not as if your ordinary Democratic voter is getting a clear signal from elites as to what to do. It seems as if elites lately are saying, well, let's support the president anyway. And you know, Dean Phillips, Marianne Williamson. You know, nothing suggests that they are setting the world on fire and are about to, uh, you know, create this unexpected shock the world surprise next Tuesday. But it all seems a little lackadaisical. It all seems rather low energy on both sides of the fence. So, you know, if if Biden can't get a majority to write in his name, I mean, that would make me at least ponder things a bit uh about you know this ongoing narrative of biden's uh lack of enthusiasm in his base you know i think 60 percent would be decent for biden if not spectacular you know the closer it gets to 50 uh, or even a plurality the more it makes me go huh and the more it would make me think about south carolina the first official event according to the democratic party and you know will those uh you know will african-american democrats who were so essential four years ago for joe biden will they show up in large numbers and again i i i have no reason to believe dean phillips has any leverage in south carolina whatsoever Um, but i do wonder about things like turnout will are they ready to go in South Carolina?
0: Well, Dante Scala, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us on Politics Is Everything.
2: Hi, Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks, Dante.
0: Kyle, you also have a new analysis of the Iowa caucus out now on the crystal ball, um, turnout there, perhaps because of the weather, perhaps because, uh, you know, we all sort of knew that Donald Trump was marching towards uh, first place there, um, or some other reason, um, you know, turnout was, was quite low, only about 110,000, um, compared to 187,000 in 2016 and 120,000 in 2008 and 2000. 2012. Um, you know, the results were, of course, no surprise to any of us who've been paying attention. Um, but you analyzed some of the key demographic characteristics to illustrate changes in a base of support that Donald Trump had in Iowa relative to the 2016 Iowa caucus. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what role ideology, education and religion played in terms of support for Donald Trump uh, this time around,
1: yeah, I think what you saw was that Trump got first of all got way more support than he got in 2016, which of course was was expected, going from 24 percent to 51 percent of the Iowa electorate. Um, and it, to me, it was a, a sort of a more kind of uh, ideologically consistent sort of uh, you know Republican electorate for Trump. In that, you know, he lost ground amongst people who called themselves moderates, but he but he gained ground among people who called themselves. Both somewhat and very conservative, particularly those who call themselves very conservative. Um, he gained more ground with uh, uh, evangel- white evangelical Christians um, than he did with people who were not uh, uh, white evangelical Christians. Um, and he also gained, um, you know, more support amongst uh, amongst people who didn't have a four year college degree as opposed to those who did. But of course, he grew with all of those groups. But it it was it was more like I think an indication that you know in what was Donald Trump's first election ever, the the 2016 with cracks That there was some real suspicion of him on kind of the the kind of further right part of the party, and that suspicion had you know evaporated certainly over the course of the the, even the 2016 campaign and then 2020, and now as Donald Trump is a candidate again, I guess the one caution you might say for Trump, and this is more of a I guess could be applicable to New Hampshire, is that but but also to maybe a general electorate is that you know if you're losing more ground amongst moderates, maybe that suggests a little bit less appeal to swing voters. I do think that. Trump was sort of less ideologically defined as being kind of like a hard right conservative in 2016 than, than he was later on, and I do think that that ended up costing him support, even if it also allowed him to, you know, broadly consolidate the Republican, um, the, uh, the, the the Republican Party. So, um, you know, just just interesting that, that you know he he just has a lot more appeal to, um, you know, kind of kind of more more conservative, more religious Republicans now than he, than he certainly did eight years ago.
0: I hope you were able to get some sleep.
1: Uh, yeah, it's been a, a busy week, but but a fun week. And of course, we've got New Hampshire coming up. And then, you know, we'll see. I mean, like if, if Trump wins New Hampshire, that would be Iowa and New Hampshire, which uh, the last, you know, uh, kind of con- Republican in a contested race to do that was Gerald Ford way back in 1976. And the Iowa caucus was not. Um, what it was not back then, what it is now. Uh, so it's, it was, you know, it was, it was like a, a, a sampling of, of sample precincts as opposed to the event that it is today. Um, so you know, Trump winning both would be would basically be you know unprecedented in modern history, and um, would certainly solidify him within the party because you know Iowa, and New Hampshire are two pretty different kinds of states. Certainly, they're both very heavily white. Um, but ideologically, they're a lot different. And if you can, if you can, if you can win both of them as a Republican, you are showing a broad level of support within the party.
0: But I don't think any of us should be shocked at that outcome.
1: No, I I don't, I don't think so either. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I, I was, I think I'm probably a little bit less bullish on Haley in, in New Hampshire after Iowa. I don't necessarily know if Iowa has played any role, of that, but role in that, but, you know, the, the polling has been kind of across the map. You could find polls that have Haley basically really close. You could also find ones that Trump is up like 15 to 20 points um, and, uh, you know. But but it's just it's just that, you know, we it might be that this thing is like effectively over, like pretty quickly. Like, I think someone needs to beat, you know, Haley needs to beat Trump in New Hampshire to really demonstrate some some viability. And even then, just be, because you're a good fit for New Hampshire might not make you a good fit for future contests either.
0: Well, thank you again for taking the time to be with us and to share your analysis. Uh, uh, despite your sleep deprivation, I'll, I'll get you a cup of coffee the next time I see you in person.
1: This is what we uh, this is what we enjoy, though. You know, it is. Uh, I mean, you're actually getting real results as opposed to looking at polls, so you can see how the polls performed or did not. You know, Iowa they were pretty good.
0: Listeners, you can find links to the new analyses this week on the Crystal Ball. The first is by Kyle Kondik on Iowa caucus results, and the second by Dante Scala on what to expect in New Hampshire. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.